Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. So we're going to be in Esther. We're continuing our, our study in Esther tonight. We're in the latter half, starting in verse 10. So for those of you that are new tonight, again, welcome. We are You are coming in on only the second week of Esther. We have several weeks to go as the book of Esther, I think, is, what is it? I think 12 chapters, if I'm correct. No. Whatever the case is. You're here at the beginning, so keep coming. Because the book of Esther is fascinating and intriguing. Look, every one of us in this room likes a good story, right? I mean, that's why we read books, that's why we watch movies, that's why we listen to podcasts. We all like a good story. And if not any of these things, we at least like telling a good story, right? We, and typically it looks like we embellish the story or whatnot, but, but we like telling stories, we like hearing stories, Stories really make up our lives. Our lives are simply a series of many stories forming one large story that God is ultimately the sovereign author of. Biographies. Biographies, as we know, are stories about someone's life. And look, if we're being honest, everybody in this room could have a biography written about them. I'm not saying it'd be super exciting. Like, for me, for example, you could write a biography about Chad, and it's not going to be the most exciting. But, work with me here. You throw in, you throw in a little drama, throw in a little suspense, bring in some humor, some satire, and a story that kind of seemed lame and boring at first, becomes very intriguing. And that's where we're at tonight. Tonight, as we look in Esther, we're going to find a series of seemingly insignificant events linked together, forming a story with the most significant consequences. I'll say that again. We have seemingly insignificant events linked together, forming a story with the most significant consequences. God, the ultimate author of Esther, is displaying his divine providence in the most, what we might call, mundane circumstances of life. Let's put it this way. If you don't think that the daily things, the daily mundane things in your life matter, read the book of Esther and think again. Because they do. See, we we, we have a tendency to look at men and women in Scripture, the great men and women of Scripture, if you will, and and we look at their lives and, and... what we see are, we say, wow, wow, they're great and awesome people and God worked in their lives in these great ways. But if you actually think about it, God called Moses when he was out shepherding a bunch of sheep. 
We just got done with Ruth. Ruth was simply, you know, Ruth, awesome Ruth. She was simply living her life gleaning the grain, the leftover grain from the field, seeking to be faithful to the Lord. King David, he was out bringing lunch to his brothers. And what? He sees the giant and slaughters him. See, these are, these examples, why I'm giving these examples, you guys, is these are, these are, mundane things that are going on that God is ultimately working for His glory. God is always at work for the believer. And we know that all of those mundane circumstances in our life are ultimately for our good and His glory. This evening, our story, starting in verse, starting in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 10, our story is set in the courts of a pagan king ruling a pagan nation with a pagan queen receiving advice from pagan advisors. There is no mention of God, nor of his law, nor of prayer, not even a mention of God's people. And yet, God is the one who is ultimately and undeniably on the throne. He is bringing about a deliverance for his people from imminent annihilation. Though God is not referenced by name, he is going to teach us tonight clearly nonetheless. Our outline is as follows. Verses 10 to 12, we have a foolish king's command. Verses 13 to 20, we have a foolish king's advisor's And verses 21 through 22, we have a foolish king's edict. Look with me at verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Memumen, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Agbatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Hashuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. A couple years ago, I was listening to a sermon by R.C. Sproul, and he said something very interesting that I haven't forgotten. His point was, or he was talking about the power of the tongue, the power of the tongue. And his point was, whenever a word comes out of your mouth, whenever you speak audibly, whether it was sinful or not, those words cannot be unheard. You can repent and genuinely be sorry, sincerely be sorry for them, but, and, and forgiven for them, but you can't unhear them. What's my point there? You can't unhear them. Because, see, when you speak... The words cannot go back into your mouth. We know that our words, our tongue, as scripture would describe it, reflects ultimately what reflects what is in our hearts. Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So where am I going? With this, and what does that have to do with King Ahasuerus? King Ahasuerus, 
As we learn from verse 1, the great king who rules over 127 provinces shows by his words, by this verbal command that he gives to his queen, really how much of a fool that he is. See, the man who is going to impress us in Esther 1.1. And if you remember from last week, for those that were here and for those that weren't here, I mean, King Ahasuerus had it all. This guy was the ruler of the world at the time. Esther 1.1, we might be impressed with him in Esther 1.1, but he is going to leave us laughing in Esther 1.22 for how foolish he really is. He shows himself to be a fool by this command to the queen. Proverbs 18.7 says, A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Now, I imagine that it is difficult to exercise any sort of wisdom when you are hammered drunk with alcohol. And that is exactly where we find our king tonight. A king who could secure dominion over the known world cannot manage to secure and have self-control over his own heart. That's really what it is. This guy conquered 127 provinces, the known world, and he can't figure out how to chill out with the alcohol. It's the seventh day of the feast, of this seven-day drinking binge. If you remember last week, this feast that he just is finishing was literally front-loaded with that command that you were, con- you were to drink without compulsion. In other words, it's, almost more, it's, it's as if it's almost more of a crime to not be drunk than it is to be drunk. That, that's this party that he's having. Right? The law is drink without compulsion. Now notice, it says here, the heart of the king was merry with wine. That, that says it all. I mean, his heart contained no wisdom. There was no room for wisdom. It was too full with the merriness of wine. And again, Luke 6.45, the mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart. So with this drunken, merry, and foolish heart, the king speaks. And what does he say? He gives a command. Queen Vashti is to appear before all the people and display her beauty. Now, different commentators have said different things, but we can assume basically this. It was sexually inappropriate. If, uh, Sam said last week, a lot of commentators agree that this seven-day feast was really a seven-day orgy. Keep, I mean, keep in mind, he wants Vashti, the beautiful Vashti, to appear before hundreds and thousands of drunken men. Things cannot go well. Now look, I don't think it's a stretch to say that that the average person saves the best thing for last, in general, right? We, we like to save the best for last. That's, that's common. And the king, no stranger to pleasing his guests, has the same mindset here. He's going to save the best thing for his guests to the very end of the party. Let's do a quick rewind. Verse 4 of chapter 1. Actually, I'll start in verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The armies of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. Okay, so he starts there. He's showing all the stuff he has. This guy was sparing no expense. Then, 
he gives his seven-day feast with endless wine in his royal garden. I mean, we read that people are eating off of golden plates with golden cups, sitting on golden couches. This guy's sparing no expense. He's showing off everything that he has. And yet, he saves one thing for the last day of the feast. His queen. Now, we might want to applaud Ahasuerus here. Wow, he, he must prize his queen so much. He's going to save her to the end. That's his most prize. I mean, this guy has all the money in the world. And he's like, no, I'm going to save her for last. But, sadly, that's all that she is to him. A possession. A possession that he wants to display to his guests so that they might lust after her and glorify him. Look how good-looking my wife or queen is. We actually really don't know if she was a wife. He probably had tons of wives. But he's like, look how good my queen is. Glorify me. Look, this is so sad. A godly husband A godly husband will not only lay down his life physically for his wife, but he will guard her purity. He will wash her in the pure water of the word. Men, addressing you, it is not loving to God or to your wife to parade her like some trophy wife to make other men jealous. It's not. I know our culture loves doing it, but it's not. You say, well, that's obvious, but we need the reminder. That's not love, that's lust. It's lust. Ahasuerus does not love Ashti. He lusts after her. Men, men, think about this. What does it look like, and I think there's a question like this in our small group time tonight. What does it look like to guard your future wife's Purity. I mean, statistically speaking, the majority of you in this room will be married someday. So, men, what does it look like for you to guard your future wife's purity? Is she merely an object? Well, future wife, is she going to be merely an object for your lustful desire, or is she one who you will sacrificially love to death? Women while your future husbands ought to be faithful in these things, as they are the head of the home, you too be wary. How you present yourself physically, spiritually, emotionally, what you wear, how you act, is going to determine the kind of man you attract. It's going to determine the kind of man you'll attract. In other words, if you don't want an Ahasuerus as a husband... Then, we, then I urge you to present yourself in a way that attracts a godly man. Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. Ooh. Delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. When I was younger, my brothers and I would do this thing. Who ever put pennies on the railroad track? Has anybody done that? Okay, there's a few hands. Okay, so it must be 
older generation. Okay, you put a, put, put, a, put a penny on the railroad tracks and watch what happens. Right? It flattens the penny out. So I remember um, growing up in, in Kingsburg, there was this restaurant we'd go to as a family right by the railroad tracks. And we'd be sitting there eating our dinner and we'd hear the train coming. And my, me and my brothers would run out to the railroad tracks and put a coin down on the track. Don't, 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 I got, don't laugh too. I got scared sometimes. That train got close. Um, and the point is, it, it flattens the coin. It's actually really cool. But I remember one time my dad was like, hey, watch out. You don't want to derail the train. I'm like freaking out. What? I'm like an eight-year-old kid. Derail the train? I don't want to be, I don't want to derail a train. <laughs> That's scary. But where, where, where am I going with this? Um, this next verse serves as that penny on the railroad tracks. It's, it's a, a verse that derails the pride and the arrogance of Ahasuerus. The reader, read verse 11, and when we sigh, we think there's those poor Vashti, what's she going to do? And then we read verse 12, but, but what? But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. So often in Scripture, we know that that term, that little um, word, but, is such a big and meaningful word. I mean, the gospel is not the gospel built on that word. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but what? But God. But God intervened. The glory, the splendor, the fame, and the riches of Ahasuerus comes full stop by this one word. But Queen Vashti said, no. The shame. The humiliation. Humiliation, I can't speak. The humiliation, right? Ahasuerus can't have this. Remember, he's having all these people at his royal palace for one thing. To get them psyched up to go to war against the Greeks. And now, they look at him and be like... This guy can't lead an army. He can't even lead, lead his own household. And we're going we're gonna to let him lead us into battle? He can't have this. He's humiliated. Ahasuerus has no control over his own queen, over his own household. So how does he respond? He, he burns with anger, with wrath. He's angry. He burns with anger. Now, Interestingly enough, we don't know this from the Bible, but history proves the uncontrolled anger of this man. Just one year later, as he begins his campaign into Greece, as he begins his campaign into Greece, there's this, he's in modern-day Turkey, where he's at at this time, modern-day Turkey and Greece. And there's this little sliver of water they have to get across between Turkey and Greece. So he has a bunch of engineers build a bridge to get across But prior to them crossing the bridge, a storm comes and wipes out the bridge. So you know what he does? He rounds up all of the engineers and beheads them. One. Then he commands all his officers to go into the water with the whips and start whipping the water. This guy's angry. He's off his rocker. Then he throws shackles onto the waves. Now, do we know this for sure? Maybe not for sure, but this is what history has said. Then, he has his officers get red-hot iron swords and start stabbing the water. This guy is mad because this bridge broke. My point is this. This guy has very little control over his 
anger. He was a man who could not control his temper. He was very foolish. Proverbs 29.11 says this, A fool lets out all of his spirit, but a wise man holds it back. In other words, a fool shows zero self-control. Well, a wise man exercises self-control. In fact, it's why, it's why self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It's the mark of a godly man or woman. Ahasuerus has shown that he has no control over his own alcohol consumption. He has no control over his lustful heart, over his own household, over his own angry heart. Ahasuerus is just showing himself to be a fool, a proud fool without self-control. We saw last week again, Esther opens by displaying the glory of this worldly king, this one who, who kind of strikes intimidation in us, and yet within just a few verses, Ahasuerus is showing himself to be a fool that we really need not to fear, much like the world around us. Point two, a king's foolish advisors. Verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Memuchen, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. The scene is meant to be almost satirical. Here we have a king who can confidently make decisions on how to throw a party, and yet he can't make a decision on how to handle a more serious matter in his kingdom. Rather than simply seeking reconciliation with his king, he turns a domestic matter into a state matter. The problem, this problem should have been solved within the confines of his home, but due to his arrogant heart, he is going to use the law to punish his wife. Or, more specifically, he is going to make a law to punish his queen. Upon the advice he gets from his, quote-unquote, wise men. Again, at this point, we should be thinking to ourselves, this guy really doesn't know what he's doing. Now, he does get advice, so maybe a little of applaud for that, right? He, he does go to his advisors. And we know there's wisdom in getting advice. <clears throat> Proverbs 12, verse 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man <clears throat> listens to advice. This is one of the reasons why, but this is one of the reasons why, by the way, we have intentional small groups. We have fun in them, yes, but their primary goal is that we're being corporately conformed to the image of Christ. We talk to one another, we pray for one another, we receive advice from one another, we admonish one another. We spur on one another toward Christ's likeness. Listen, it's foolish to try and live your Christian life out all on your lonesome. That's why we have small groups. But back to my point. The wise man in God's eyes listens to advice. 
And so here we go. We have King Ahasuerus going to seek advice from his advisors. But is this wise? Not really. Because typically when you seek advice from someone, you seek it from someone who is wiser than you, or at least someone who is not in the same depths of sin as you are. We know that from the text here that they are the princes of Media and Persia that sit next to him, which means they were at the party the whole time, which means they were probably just as hammered drunk as he was. So his advice from these people is probably not the best advice. Furthermore, the wise man goes to others to get advice on what he needs to hear, not on what he wants to hear. Okay, look, it's easy for us to go to someone and say, well, I sought advice when, when, or I sought counsel when in reality we just went over to our buddy who agreed with us on everything and he just gave us what we wanted to hear. Right? That, that's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. It's easy to get advice from people when they tell us what we want to hear. It's a lot harder when your friend, when your peer, when your mentor says what's hard to hear. Getting told what you want to hear is kind of just like getting buttered up, right? It just, that's what's happening here. That's what's happening to the king of this moment. Look, look verse 16. Then Memukin, this guy is interesting. We're going to see a lot of him here in a sec. Then Memukin said, in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against Queen, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. So the king goes out and seeks advice from seven men, but really just takes the advice from one man. Memukin. Memukin. What an interesting fellow. This guy is a snake. He's going to manipulate Ahasuerus to get what he wants done in the kingdom. One commentator said that he is a henpecked man. He's too fearful of living he's too fearful of losing power over his own wife, and so he is trying to take advantage of this little domestic dispute between the king and the queen. So he exaggerates, king Everybody is going to hear about this. And, and, and Queen Vashti not just sinned against you. See, she wronged everybody in the kingdom. Okay, there's 50 million people in the kingdom right now. Are you kidding me? She did not wrong everyone in the kingdom. He's exaggerating. He's exaggerating. Right? Furthermore, he says, every wife is going to want to... Verse sixteen, um, no, verse seventeen. For the queen's behavior will will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Really, all women, fifty million people in this 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 nation. He's, no, he's exaggerating. He's manipulating the king to get what he wants done. Again, I said that this guy is a coward. 
This guy's a coward. Uh, one, one commentator gave a little story for Memukin. He said this. I, I chuckled at this. One day a man came into the office and was telling everyone that his wife, the night before, just praised him for being a model husband. One office employee, unimpressed, encouraged him to go up to go look up the term model in the dictionary, and he wouldn't be so proud. The man taking the advice read, model, a small imitation of the real thing. Small imitation of the real thing. Scared that he might lose his power, Memucan manipulates the king. So we see what's happening here. Not only has the king proven he has no self-control, but now he has proven that he can be easily manipulated. In fact, later on in Esther, we learn that Haman does the very same thing. Haman manipulates the king. A king with no self-control that can be easily manipulated by a power-hungry prince doesn't seem like all that great of a king after all. And that's the point. That's the point. The king that impresses us in verse 1 is leaving us blushing at the end of this chapter. He really isn't someone we need to fear. The world is not something we need to fear. That's what this passage is telling us. So what's the solution? If we can't get so they say okay, so if we can't get our wives to submit to us, we're going to force them to. Great plan. Again, they're just full of great ideas, being drunk and all. And so, to ensure everyone gets the message loud and clear, verse 19 says this, If it pleases the king, Memucan is speaking, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before the king, Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she Three things. It is written so everyone can understand. It cannot be taken back. Vashti is to never again appear before the king. The solution to men being the leader in their home is not to live with their wives in a humble, sacrificial, loving way, but it is to establish an irrevocable command that you obey me or leave me or die. God, how do I say this? Like a Hashuerus, I should say, like him, God wills male headship. We know this from the scriptures. But while a Hashuerus determines the intimidation and domineering and demanding submission is the way go is the way to go about it, God determines a much more glorious way. Turn real quick to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5.22 Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. There it is. There's the command. There's the command. Wives are to submit to their own husbands. But verse 25 of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christian men are to live in such a manner that cultivates a home where the wife delights to submit. 
because they are living Christ before her. They're living Christ out. They are displaying Christ. Christian male headship is rooted in Christ. His self-sacrificial love is our example. The gospel becomes the foundation on which relationships are built. Love as Christ loved and love because Christ first loved. Love as Christ loved and love because he first loved us. Now to add add further to the humor of this whole scene, the king ends up commanding that Vashti never appear before him again. Something that Vashti clearly had already determined. That's the whole reason this happened in the first place. She did not want to come before the queen. So they're determining something that she already decided on her own. But verse 19 says this, the end, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Sometimes, because we know the ending of the story, the suspense that the original author intended is lost on us. But I want you to imagine that you don't know the end of the story, and Queen Vashti just got kicked out, and then we read this, and let the king give her royal position to another. Oh, so there is another queen coming. I wonder who that might be. So we see God's hand of providence here. We finally see where this story is going. A new queen. Or a better queen than Vashti, as we read. Or more specifically, probably in his mind, a a queen that's just more obedient. Interestingly enough, though, Queen Esther would likewise defy Ahasuerus, just as Vashti did. However, as Vashti refused to enter Ahasuerus' courts despite the formal command, Esther will enter the courts without a formal command. Our last point and our quickest point. Verse 21. Or I'm sorry, I'm going to start in verse 20. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Okay, so they really think they have this all figured out. All they're going to do is have to go throw one irrevocable lie out there, and there is complete peace and harmony in the home, in all of the kingdom. I tell you what. It's, it's really, it's laughable. So verse 21, this advice pleased the king and the princes and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script and to every people in its own language that everyone be master in his own household and speak according to the language of the people. So surprise, surprise, the, the, the advice that Memucan proposed pleased the king. It says, please the king. So much so that the emphasis is back on Memucan. This advice pleased the king and the princes and the king did as what? Memucan proposed. It's like he's running the kingdom here. It's like he's calling his shots. Ironically, while the king may deem these men as wise men, really we, we are saying that they're the furthest thing from wise. Upon their advice, Ahasuerus makes this irrevocable edict 
that demands men are masters in their own homes, and women can say nothing about it. As we look ahead, we need to realize that Hashuerus, like all power-hungry world leaders, was really self-obsessed and really a maniac. He makes vast decisions with little thought. Between chapters 1 and 2 of Esther, Ahasuerus, or like we heard last week, Xerxes, goes to war against Greece. And next week, when we pick up a chapter 2, verse 1, it takes place three years after what we're reading right now, because he just suffered a huge defeat from the Greeks. Ahasuerus is an overconfident man who can't really seem to make good decisions, except one, except one. But ultimately, it was the hand of the Lord. It was the providential hand of Yahweh, because Ahasuerus will soon make the decision to make Esther queen. So we close, I want us to consider a few, almost done, I want us to consider a few encouraging conclusions from our text tonight. One, the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of Ahasuerus. The kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of Ahasuerus. This book is going to constantly, frequently cause us to compare and contrast the kingdom of the Lord, or the kingdom of Ahasuerus and the kingdom of the Lord. Don't fear. This, This is the message that the Lord is giving us. Don't fear the shining, glimmering, and seemingly impressive things of the world. They aren't worth fearing. They are castles of glass that at the Lord's sovereign command rise up and fall down. Just like that. Scripture is clear that every single ruler that has ever lived has been placed there by God. Now don't get me wrong, I realize we are living in a God-hating society. We just got done with Romans 1 on Sunday mornings. Go back and listen to those sermons if you missed them. We live in a God-hating society that will seek to make unrighteous laws and much like King Ahasuerus, laws that attempt to suppress the truth of God. Like Ahasuerus, Yahweh too has laws that cannot be repealed. However, unlike Ahasuerus, our God's law is eternal. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Furthermore, there are indeed devastating consequences when we do not submit to Yahweh's law. But unlike Ahasuerus' laws, God's law is always for our good. They aren't determined by the drunken whims and foolishness of a mere man, but are decreed by the Creator and the Redeemer of heaven and earth for our good. His laws aren't meant to hold us back as if we're missing out on something, despite what Satan tempted Eve to do in the garden. No, his rules are for our good. They are delightful to us. Listen, Jeremiah seven twenty three. For when I brought your fathers out of the land of Egypt, I did not merely command them about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this is what I commanded them. 
Obey me and I will be your God. Listen to that fellowship. And you will be my people. You must walk in all the ways I have commanded you so that it may go well with you. God's word is for our good. The kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of Ahasuerus because honestly, most obviously, King Ahasuerus is dead. And our king is on his throne, still reigning. Second, the sovereignty of God is not like the sovereignty of Ahasuerus. Certainly, we see in some way, again, we, we are impressed, right? He, he's, he's reigning over from, from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, we're told. He has enough money to throw a lavish party for half a year without incurring any ounce of debt. But if we're being honest, <clears throat> that's where his sovereignty ends. Despite his best efforts, he has no actual control over the empire. Whether it is a queen who refuses to obey or a storm that destroys bridges, he really has no control. He is a mere mortal man. Yahweh, on the other hand, is the sovereign Lord over the entire universe. Not one blade of grass moves a centimeter without its command. Not one leaf falls to the ground without him to creen for it to do so. The farthest star and the farthest galaxy is being held together right now by his sovereign power. Friends, you are being held together right now by his sovereign power. Psalm 50 verse 1 says, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. From the rising of the sun to its setting. It's always rising and it's always setting somewhere. Therefore, 24-7, God is speaking, summoning the earth. Or what about Psalm 115, verse 3? Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Lastly, and closing with this, finally, the, the banquet of God. The banquet of God is not like the banquet of Ahasuerus. This, I love this. Yahweh too has a glorious banquet just for his people on that last day. It has been prepared and our feasting with him is very soon. Certainly it is different from the king, from, from Ahasuerus' banquet, right? I mean, while his banquet was filled with debauchery and sin, Yahweh's banquet will be filled only with the righteousness and with the redeemed. But even more than that, I want you to notice, Ahasuerus demanded his queen come, which would result in her shame. Ahasuerus said, come, and it would result in her shame. But our God beckons his bride in order that he might lavish grace upon grace on her, not to shame us. While it was foolish for Vashti to appear at the king's feast, it would be, and she didn't, but it would have been foolish, it would be infinitely more foolish not to appear before Yahweh's feast. 
while Ahasuerus demanded Vashti to come to him, our God patiently woos us and yet sovereignly draws us so that we cannot and do not want to resist him. While Ahasuerus desired Vashti to come to him without clothes or very little, our God has clothed uh, clothed us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Quote from this commentary I was reading, Far from regarding her as a beautiful object existing solely to feed his pride and pleasure, Christ took one who was by nature completely unattractive and gave himself for her, laying down his own life for his people. It was while we were still dead in our transgressions and sins that Christ gave himself for us. His life as a ransom for the ungodly. Everything we have, even the very righteousness in which we are clothed to appear before God, comes from his good hand. How can our hearts not be touched again with fresh love for a king who has loved us so freely and so graciously? With such a husband calling us, why would we not be delighted and overjoyed to come at his bidding? A king who has done so much for us can surely ask any level of obedience from us in response. End quote. Let us laugh at the foolishness of King Ahasuerus and the foolishness of this world, but let us stand in joyful awe of the goodness of our King, Yahweh. Father, we come grateful for your word, trusting, Lord, that you will use this according to your will, to conform us to the image of your Son, to convict us of sin, to grow in us Christ-likeness. Cause us to be so, Lord. Make us to know your way. Cause us to walk in them and delight in them. Help us, Lord, not to fear the world, but to fear the Lord and to treasure him. Thank you for Christ. Apart from him, Lord, we would be dead in our sin and we would have no hope. But because of him, we are the most hopeful and we are alive to you, O God. Blessed be your name. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.